Hi, and welcome to the Overflow Podcast. I'm Chuck Ammons, teaching pastor at Overflow Church in Brandon, Florida, and we are here to help you receive the Father's love and to release it to everyone you encounter everywhere. Wherever you're listening from today, your God adores you. I pray this message elevates and ignites your faith. On this podcast, you will find biblical messages to activate your faith, as well as our You Asked For It series, where we address your questions about trusting God's goodness as Father and living out His fullness as beloved sons and daughters. To find out more about Overflow Church, visit us at myoverflowchurch.com or on Facebook at Overflow Church Brandon. We'd also love to encourage you to check out our book, Life in the Overflow, and its accompanying devotional at Amazon.com. Church is a hard place, isn't it? When we stand in this place between grieving and rejoicing, and there's so many reasons to rejoice on planet Earth today. In fact, before we're done today, you're going to see a celebration coming in the breezeway, and yet just moments ago we were on our faces weeping before the Lord, and there would be some who would say, well, then maybe you missed it this morning, and I'd say, no, maybe that's all of creation all of the time. Maybe all of creation is us walking between the tension of the already and the not yet. See, we rejoice today because Jesus is already king and he's already taken his throne. And I want you to know right now, he is holding two boys close to his heart and he's holding their mama and he's holding the captors. And he's going to win in all things. Right now there is much that we rejoice and right now there is much that is broken and if we gloss over it and put a Bible verse on it and go, well, it's not hitting me and my family. It is hitting our family all the time. And we always live in this moment between lament and joy and what do we do with that? You know, I think the Lord put us in a perfect moment today as we've been reading through the Gospels together. I hope you're enjoying reading the Gospels. You're getting ready to come to the end of the Gospel of Luke this week. And we made this prayer before the Lord. We said, Lord, just so we could be together in your word and see how you speak to our everyday. You spoke back then, but you speak still. We're just asking that you would give us something to share on Sunday mornings that would come from our reading that week. And so this morning, not knowing any of this, this news came late last night. But this week, as we were preparing what we felt we wanted to share this morning is what to do while you're waiting for the end of the world. We're to be looking together today at Luke chapter 21 in the midst of brokenness, of wars and rumors of wars and kidnappings, of hunger and famine and brokenness. And what do we do while we're waiting for kingdom come? So I just want you to pray with me this morning. Holy Spirit, I have no question that you're orchestrating the moments that we're in because right now, Father, you want us as the church. Pastor Ken's question earlier, where is the church? Oh, it's a good question. It's a good question, and I see you walking like you did in the garden to Adam and Eve saying, where are you, son? Where are you, daughter? But you're not speaking to your church in shame. You're speaking to your church, your bride, to say, hey, come on out. Come on out. Lift your head. Confidently know who you are because these are the days. You're not home yet. 
You're not home yet, so don't live in the place where you think you're already home. Don't live as all of this is for you. But don't live just buried under lament and grief because your king is here and he's alive. And there's hope on planet Earth that you're supposed to represent. And so, Father, I pray that you would clothe us with the fullness today of the ability to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. Would you speak to us? I pray that you would do something because of who you are, God, today. I believe you have a message for us. I pray that you would sow it deep in our hearts. If you agree with that, say amen. amen. So it was December 1999. Anybody remember that? Some people in the room not old enough to remember that. But December 1999, and the world was losing its mind. There was mass fear that swept the globe that, that as soon as we clicked over onto January 1st, 2000, the clocks would be unable to switch with the new millennium and it would trigger a global shutdown. And people prepared for Y2K in vastly different ways, didn't they? Now, I was in college at the time of 1999, and I will tell you, across the globe, people who were in college had one way they responded that might not have been the healthiest. They said, it's the end of the world. We're going to party. Like, the world's coming to an end and there were many people that December 31st, 1999, threw away their purity and their innocence and awoke January 1st with lots of regrets. There were others that said the way that we respond when we think it's the end of the world is panic. I had a dear friend of mine that I grew up with, and he told me just a few months before December 1999 that he and his family had purchased a bunker in the foothills of Tennessee and that they had purchased all kinds of canned goods where they were going to stay and through a tearful goodbye he said that overnight with no experience they were going to be the farmers and the protectors of their land for the coming apocalypse and there were lots of people like that that panicked but did you know there was a third response in fact I'll say this you didn't know there was a third response because it happened so far behind the scenes none of us understood it there was a response to Y2K that could only be called purification in the days they were in. It wasn't party, and it wasn't panic. You see, Y2K didn't happen largely because there was a team of people who saw the problem far in advance. And by the way, in case you're wondering and laughing about Y2K, there was a problem, a huge one. There was a problem that, had it not been seen, could have triggered the very global meltdown that we feared. But did you know that for over a decade before Y2K, there was a team of people who saw the problem, who decided to plow the field quietly and faithfully to address it and remove it so that on January 1st, 2000, all of us could experience the life that we could have. See, in Luke chapter 21, Jesus shares with us what to do while we're waiting for the end of the world. And this is a chapter where he's talking mostly with his followers. He's talking to us. And in Luke 21, what you're going to find is many of the things we just wept about. Jesus is talking about current and soon coming events. He's talking about things happening in their politics, in their economy. He talks about their national livelihood. He talks about natural disasters and earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of wars and coming persecution. He discusses the struggle with religion and what it can do to people, and the systems that must swiftly fall. And he talks about his glorious return, the day where he's going to part the clouds and come through once for all to wipe the tears away from our eyes and make all wrongs right forever and ever. 
But there's a key that happens in the middle of Luke chapter 21. In fact, it happens three times where Jesus stops the narrative of what's going on. Because while all of these things tend to shape the horizons of our daily conversations, whether it's paranoia with what is broken in the world, whether it's panic, or whether we've decided that we're just going to party and just ignore everything that's going on as if the world is all about me. In the middle of all of that, in the middle of conspiracy theories or, or blame-shifting political parties or labeling the Antichrist for the umpteenth time. In our conversations at the water cooler about agendas of the left or agendas of the right and the people who are ruining this country or ruining this world. Or for the many people who just decide, you know what, we're just going to ignore all of that. We're going to be like my college friends and just party. The world's going down. We're going to live as a consumer as if today is all we're going to get. I'm going to get for me and mine. In the midst of that, Jesus stops three times to invite his followers, us, to take a higher view. That we would be people who would be sober-minded and know what's actually happening in the world around us today so that quietly and faithfully and joyfully we can live and join him in the preparations that are needed to bring heaven down to earth so that all people can experience the life that he died to give us. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus shares in the midst of all of the noise three ways we can build our lives when the world is ending. The first one is this. Jesus says, what do you do when the world is broken, when it's ending, when there are kidnappings, when there are wars? What do you do? Number one, Jesus says, worship me with everything. What do you do when the world is ending? You worship Jesus with everything. The chapter begins this way. Jesus is in the temple. There's a lot of other things going on, but his eyes are drawn to something that no one else sees, and it will be the backdrop for everything that's going to follow. It says, and Jesus looked up in the temple and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow who put in two small copper coins. He said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, I want you to understand, you're going to think, I thought you were talking about the end of the world. We're, now, we're, now there's a widow in an offering? What's going on? I want you to see in Luke chapter 21, this is the setting. See, from this moment, Jesus is going to come out and talk to his disciples about what's really happening in the days that we're in. But he starts by saying, I want to show you what happens and what matters most to the heart of God. See, this widow, it says that she was a poor widow. The word poor in Greek, it means having to toil daily just to get enough. This wasn't a paycheck-to-paycheck woman or a week-to-week -week woman. This was a day-by-day. -day. Every time the sun rose in the morning, she had to determine how she was going to get by for yet another day. Not only that, she was a widow. And the word in Greek for widow wasn't just somebody who lost their husband. In fact, the word meant destitute, like a city that had been stripped of its inhabitants. This was a woman that when you looked at her, all of her life, all of her dreams, all that she thought she would be was stripped away from her face and she looked devoid. It wasn't somebody you would praise. It was somebody you'd pity. And the story says that what she brought was a tiny offering. In fact, the coin, a mite. She brought two mites. The word literally means small, thin, or of little substance. See, this woman, when she came in, no one recognized her. 
No one celebrated her. There was no honor. There was no applause. In fact, if anybody saw her, they would have felt she was too dirty or what she offered was too insignificant to contribute anything of value to what actually mattered in the days they were in. And yet Jesus stopped and said that she advanced his kingdom more than everyone else around him for two simple reasons. Because in the midst of all of the noise, she wanted him, and she brought everything she had to his feet. Why did she change things? Because in the midst of the noise, she wanted him, and because she brought everything she had to his feet. You see, for this woman, God was her whole world. She had no savings. She had no fallback. She was banking her whole life on God. As a Christian and as a pastor, I often get asked about the tithe. I get asked, is that still a thing that we're under? Are we still under the tithe? Is it still a principle? Is it even a good idea? I get asked, do we tithe off of the gross or do we tithe off of the net? And I want to tell you that I think most of those conversations are misguided, not because of our application of the tithe, but because all too often it reveals that we believe that our treasures and our time and our talents and our touch and our stuff is still ours. We guard our nothing. Who said that? <laughs> Put that one in a quote. Put that on a t-shirt. Mm. We live as if it's still ours. And we don't say this, but often many of us take the attitude that when we give our time, our talents, our treasure, when we show up and give something, confetti cannons should go off and a parade should come through the city like, there it is, we're okay now because of you. But here's the problem with that. See, when I came to Jesus, the old me, which was holding a whole bunch of nothing and a whole bunch of pain and a whole bunch of regret, the old me died. Jesus has become my all in all. What do I mean? He's my everything about everything. Now, because of that, my stuff, my time, my abilities, my soul, and my yes are wide open at his disposal. I don't approach life today asking, well, what is it that's appropriate? What do most, just tell me what most Christians give. Tell me what most Christians do with their time. I'm not looking at everybody else, and I don't do this perfectly, but I want you to know this. My eyes aren't on you. My eyes are on him. What do you do while you're waiting for the end of the world? You stop focusing on all the noise and put all of your everything on him. You take whatever you have and you lay it at his feet. And I want you to understand something. I don't do that because I'm trying to keep up with the Joneses. I don't do that because that's what a good Christian should do. And I don't do that because I'm afraid of some wrath of God of what he's going to do if I don't give him his due. I give it to him because he's changed absolutely everything about everything in my life. And what else can I do? but take my little insignificant offering and lay it at his feet. And that may seem like a little shift, but when you see it that way, everything about your days changes. Perhaps you feel like the widow. Anybody with me? You feel like what I have for Jesus just doesn't feel like that much that I have to offer. I look at my time, I look at what I could do with my talents, I look at what I could do with my treasures or my touch, and it feels insignificant or dirty. Anybody else there? 
The question is, would you choose to want him more than everything and just bring what you have and lay it at his feet? See, Jesus would go on from this moment to talk about current events, to talk about brokenness, to talk about last days, to talk about our responsibility, but he starts here. Because what Jesus is begging for for us and what I believe we desperately need is Jesus is saying, please, if you're following me, change the headline of your horizon. Don't just make me a section in your newspaper. Here's world events, and here's my dreams, and here's entertainment, and here's Jesus. He said, I want you to get swept up in my love and in the wonder of being mine, and you will no longer be tossed by the waves of every political candidate or every drama or these people rejected me or they don't receive me or the water cooler gossip. What do we do while we wait for the end of the world? We give our whole heart. We want him more than anything, and we bring everything we have at his feet so that he can do what he desires. That's the first one. The second, what do we do while we wait for the end of the world? We reflect how we know Jesus and everything. What do we do? We worship Jesus with everything, but second, we reflect Jesus in everything. And at this point, Jesus starts to talk about some things going on that we might recognize. He talks about those wars and those rumors of wars. He talks about oppressors. He talks about broken religion. And then he gets in and talks directly to us as followers, and he says this, they will lay their hands on you, and they will persecute you, delivering you up in synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle, therefore, in your minds ahead of time not to meditate how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up to even, by even parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. What do we do while we wait for the end of the world? We reflect Jesus in everything. But this is what we need to understand because we've got a wrong script about what we expect the Christian life to be like that has led to a lot of victimhood and a lot of entitlement and a lot of blaming God for things that he has told us clearly are our inheritance that we were not made to resent, but we were made to reflect him in. He says first that if we're going to follow him, that there are some who will lay their hands on us. I want you to know this is right in my notes that would have come far before the news last night. But those words mean to rush on, to seize, and to kidnap. What is he telling us? He tells us that we're living in a world where things like what Pastor Ken just said happened will happen. And the guarantee is not that because it's your kid, it won't happen to you. He said there's a broken world, and if you want your guarantee in tomorrow's headlines, then you're going to resent God instead of reflecting him. He goes further. He said they're going to persecute you. The word persecute means to pursue continually in order to catch. It's that really annoying kid that was on the playground that always tried to chase you and never ran out of energy. And you're like, good God, kid. Remember that one? (laughs) You were like, I can avoid you for a while, but oh my, you win. Tag, you win. That kid, that's the word persecution. 
And what it actually means is an unending attack. He says you live in a world where there will be things that will come against you ceaselessly, and you've done nothing wrong. See, if we actually had eyes to see, we would see that the continual testimony of the New Testament is this, that you and I are aliens and strangers in a hostile land that is in the process of being restored. So we've been walking through these devotionals. There's something that I gave. If you're wrestling with what's going on this week, listen, I, I detail in our devotions this week 35 scriptures in the New Testament that speak specifically about what we do in the midst of trials and pain and tribulation because we desperately need a more mature theology about the days that we're living in. Because until we get that, we will make our own pain and our own trials the headline of our days. We will cry out about injustice, but it'll always be this. It'll always be, woe is me. I'm forgotten. I'm rejected. I've been left out. No one understands me. Everything will be traumatic. You will jump from church to church and job to job and friend to friend, and you will convince yourself that the whole world is out against you, and no one could possibly understand everything that you're going through. And that's hard. Because in this life, there are real traumas and real heartbreaks that all of us are going to face that Jesus compassionately wants to draw near, to hold us, and to heal us. And, somebody say and. Okay? Does brokenness happen to all of us? Yes? Yes. Should we even compare my brokenness to your brokenness? Are there different levels and different times and different ebbs and different flows that it's, it's not worth comparing, right? But we all go through brokenness, Yes? And Jesus wants to come through and heal us, yes? yes? And there's a scheme of the enemy right now that desperately wants you to walk alone as a prideful orphan. I want to define exactly what I mean, and I want to tell you, I'm not preaching down at anybody. I'm looking in the mirror and telling you the scheme that goes on in my head that I have to silence regularly before the throne of God. What do I mean by a prideful orphan? I mean this, that the enemy wants more than anything else to blind your eyes today to the billions of ways your God has held you, made you, given you life. Let me just say this. If you've grieved in life, you only grieved because there was a good gift to begin with. You grieved because there was something that you had of a picture of what life and goodness and joy and peace and love looks like. I can't tell you the number of people that say, I don't believe in God because he took my grandpa away. And I say, you need a more mature theology. God gave you a grandpa. And you hurt because his gift was so beautiful you wanted it to be forever. You just misunderstand the moment that you're in. The day's coming of a homecoming and a reunion. This isn't your home. Stop placing your hope here. I'm so tired of people resenting Jesus because they're representing the wrong kingdom and they're hoping for the wrong thing. The scheme is this, that you and I wouldn't see the billions of ways that God is coming around and pursuing us and blessing us and establishing us every day. And the second part, remember I said a prideful orphan, would be this, that you and I would walk with the audacity and the insanity that I alone would know better how to care for my heart than my creator. And I make my own rules. It is prideful orphanhood. And it shows that we fail to understand the days that we're in. If we fail to understand the days we're in, we will either live entitled 
or we will live as victims every time we encounter the very things Jesus said are the universal human experience. So I want to say something to you today that's going to be hard to say, and I hope that you understand that I'm not saying it from a place of defeat, but ultimate victory. If you think because I serve Jesus and I love Jesus, you look in the mirror, you say, I serve Jesus, I follow the rules, that means life is going to work, that means nothing bad is going to happen to my kids. It means I'm going to get the jobs that I should get. It means our finances are going to work out. We've got this Tony Robbins self-positivity thinking Christianity that has swept the globe that says if you just follow the rules, Jesus is going to give you everything you want here, and I want to tell you, you're defending the wrong kingdom. In this world, you will have troubles. Some of you as parents have done everything right with your kids and your kids have walked away from the Lord and walked away from you and you are not at fault and you are not failing and that Tony Robbins positivity crap's got to go out the window because King Jesus sees you and he says, hey, in the world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I already overcame the world and I'm in the process of making it new and right now, listen, this is what I desperately need. I need you to stop resenting your trials. Because there's a hurting and broken orphan world that desperately needs for you to reflect me in them. See, nobody is going to want to come and run and follow Jesus just because, oh, we follow Jesus, we get all the things we want. That's scratching a lottery ticket. You know what makes Jesus look beautiful? When all of life falls apart and like Job, you hear somebody say, though he slay me, yet I will worship him because of what I've seen, because of who he is, because of how great he is. And I know it's not a popular message, Man, we preach the messages of come to Jesus, get free stuff. By the way, that was Pepsi's ad in the 90s. Okay, that's not the, the gospel. <laughs> come to Jesus, get free stuff is not the gospel. We're going to reign with him forever. But it also comes with trials and sufferings. And I want to tell you this. When we see him correctly, like Paul, we would say, I just want to be with Jesus. In glory and in suffering, I just want him and here in the midst of this passage, Jesus says this about our trial. I said, what do we do in the midst of it? We have an opportunity to reflect him. He says this, you have an opportunity to bear witness. I love this. The word opportunity in Greek, you know what it means? It's a ship disembarking from a dock with a clear course that's navigated. Let me say that again so you get it. Anybody have bad crap going on in your life right now? Anybody? I'm the one guy. Everybody else's life's working? If he else got stuff that you're like, man, it's uncomfortable. I don't like it. I want it to stop. This person's annoying. This is frustrating. Listen. He said, if you could see me right now, what you'd understand is you have an opportunity. What is he saying? The ship has left the harbor. I have docked a course right now for a destination, and that course is going straight through certain experiences with people who are drowning, that I'm taking your ship right by them, that if you could reflect me instead of making it all about you, resenting you, then in the midst of your going by, not only am I going to free you, I'm going to free them too. There's an opportunity here. What's the opportunity? That you would bear witness. It means a legal witness who has the moral authority to change the course of others. It's where we get our word martyr. You have an opportunity, what? To change the course of other people by the way you walk through your trial. By the way, a martyr doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to give your physical life up. Mother Teresa lived as a martyr. Amen? We look at Mother Teresa's life, a woman who left her homeland and said, that nobody will care for orphans like that, and she does. And what did she do? She changed the line for the rest of us. i got to tell you, I've walked as a foster 
a dad for many years because of the boldness of somebody like a Mother Teresa who stepped out and I said, okay, I see what Jesus can do in a life. I'm looking at things wrong. I'm making it about me. Why? Because a martyr came by on the course who took the opportunity to get me out of the water and up on the ship. But I want you to get the end of this. He says this. He says, some of you will be put to death. And then he says, but not a hair on your head will perish. I, I don't know about you, but, but it would kind of seem to me like those two things can't both be true. Some of you, are you guys reading this with me? Some of you, they will put to death one sentence later, right? And the only thing he says in between it is everybody's going to hate you, okay? That's what he says in between. Some of you that put to death, everybody's going to hate you. Everybody's going to be hated by somebody because you love Jesus. By the way, somebody needs to know that. You're making it about you. All these people don't like me. They don't like me. They don't like me. Read your Bible. Okay? They're going to put you to death. Everybody's going to be hated. And then he says this, but not a hair on your head will perish. Some are put to death, but for all, not a hair on your head will perish. What is he saying? Hear this clearly. Faithfulness to Jesus may cost you your reputation, your belongings, your safety, or even your physical life, but not a hair on your head can perish. You're an eternal being who is his forever. The ship has already left the harbor. The course has already been charted. By the way, right now, the trials that you're going through are taking you through a very specific course that God, not you, charted that is taking you past people who are drowning and you have only one choice. The ship is getting to the destination. Will you make it about you or will you look out and reflect and start pulling people up along the way? Why? Because you're going to get to the other side of this and find that not a hair of your head ever perished. What do we do in the days that we're in? I think we know who we are. We know whose we are. We understand something about the story that we're in, that this is not forever. This is the foyer. The mansion is coming. There are way too many people that are obsessing about re-wallpapering the foyer over and over and over and over again. And if you saw that with somebody's coat room, you'd think they're a little kooky. Lots of Christians look a little kooky because that's what they're doing right now. And Jesus said, you need to understand you're an eternal being. You're already mine. And if you would know where this story is heading, perhaps today you could get your courage back. You could get your spine back. You could get your hope back. And not live for this moment, but live alive in the moment for the Savior who made the moment. What does that mean? I know I'm meddling a little bit here. But there is so much whining in the Christian life that has got to stop. It doesn't look good on us. There's so much whining that looks like prideful orphanhood. And it's prideful because it's this. You go through a trial and you think nobody else could possibly understand. Are you kidding me? I know pain like you know pain. My dad died when I was six years old. I don't have a single living picture or memory of him, and the greatest call of my life is to be a father. The greatest passion of my life, the greatest person that could have reflected the greatest passion of my life was dead before I could have a memory. Save it about we can't understand what you're going through. 
In the world, you will have trouble. Your troubles won't be my troubles. Yeah, that's true. But there will be troubles. There will be pain. And God is working in the midst of all things, even really bad things, for the good of those who love him. And what he's desperately looking for is sons and daughters who would stop worshiping the moment. Stop worshiping our trinkets and guarding them here as if they're some grand treasure. And we come like a widow with our little might and say, Lord, with whatever days you give me, with whatever strength, with whatever voice I have, I willfully give you all. What do we do while we're waiting for the end of the world? We worship Jesus with everything. We reflect Jesus with everything. And the final one is this. We serve Jesus with everything. Jesus ends this chapter with one more stop from talking about current events. And he says this to us. And with this, I hope to give you some hope. Some of you are like, man, Pastor Chuck's like fired up and mean this morning. Why is he being mean to us? I love you. And I want to tell you, if you hear any annoyance, I'm annoyed at me and how I get in my head sometimes worshiping the wrong kingdom. And he's called us to better than that. So I want to lift our eyes today. What do we do with this moment? We serve him with everything. This is where he comes. And don't worry, if you've been feeling this is heavy, some hope's coming. I'm going to tell you something more than like stuff's broken and stop whining about it. Here we go. <laughs> this is what parents do sometimes, right? Broken, stop whining about it. I'll give you something to cry about. That's not my message this morning. <laughs> it's going to get better. Hand on your heart. Say, it's going to get better. All right, here we go. Jesus says this, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day comes upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and that you will stand before the Son of Man. Jesus ends giving us a charge, and he says this, this is what I want for the days you're in. I want you to watch. I want you to watch. It means to be attentive to be attentive and to be devoted to. Unsurprisingly, it's another ship navigational tool. So he's in this whole thing of talking about a ship. Remember we talked about it. We said that he set out right now. He said there's trials. You've set out from shore. You're going where you're going. And he says, what do I want you to do? Listen. He says, watch. And that spoke of the intentional navigation that a captain would stay at the wheel at all times so the ship would reach the destination it's supposed to get to. He said, what do I want from you? He said, wake up. Be alert. Keep your course set. Know where I'm going. Why? Because there's a danger. And here's the danger, that you would become weighed down. The word means to be overcharged and to be waterlogged. It means for your vessel to take in more that you sink and you slow. And specifically, God ends this passage sharing three weights that want to slow us down and that want to sink our vessel. And there's hope today if you find yourself here. So listen, if the shoe fits, you can kick it off. And worship team, you can come on up. The first weight is the weight of cynicism. In Greek, the word is dissipation. He says this. He says, you get weighed down with dissipation. I love this. In Greek, I love Greek words. Can I teach you a little Greek? So here, here's the Greek word for dissipation. Crapole. <laughs> You're going to get weighed down with crapole. <laughs> dissipation means, listen, 
a headache or pain that seizes part of your body like the after effect of a hangover or indulging in too much food. Anybody ever gone to the buffet and ate more than you should have eaten? Right? Anybody ever go there and you remember like the moment that you're there, you're like, this is the best day ever, and then you're like, I want to die, and you start making deals with God? You know that feeling, right? <laughs> Maybe you've been there being intoxicated and you come into a hangover. Listen, he said, this is what could weigh you down. There's a hangover that could come over your soul. What is it? Proverbs 13, 12 says this, hope deferred makes the heart sick. See, when you continually long for the stuff here to satisfy your hearts, it won't. And your vessel will become overcharged and weighed down with the headaches and the nausea of trusting in the wrong treasure. He said, what do I want for you today? I want you to cut the crap away, right? I want you to get to the place today that you would look in your heart and say, if I'm trusting in something that's never going to satisfy, I'm going to let go of that treasure today. The second one is this. He said, what's going to weigh you down? It's consumerism. The word in Greek is drunkenness. It means intoxication, drunkenness, or overindulgence. It means to operate under the influence of a substance other than God. What's he talking about? He's talking about being able to say, well, I'm a Christian, but my joy and my hope is really somewhere else. I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven, I've prayed the prayers, I've got the good doctrine, I checked all the right boxes, but my hope is somewhere else. And maybe you're asking the question, how do I know if my hope is in something else? Here it is, you ready? How do you spend your time? See, the scripture says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth is speaking. How do you spend your time? How do you invest your treasures, the things that you have ability and that you're able to do on planet Earth? Do they all go to you and your buddies? about your treasures, the resources in your hands? Are they going to help people who are drowning up back on the ship? What about your touch, your presence? Who are the people that get your gaze, your soul? He said, I'm concerned because we live in a consumer culture and there are many consumer Christians that can live like those college students partying saying, the world's broken, so I just got to get me a fix. I just got to binge watch something else on Netflix. I just got to make it all about me and it's never going to satisfy. There's a third concern he had and it's that we get buried by capsized cares. The word cares in Greek means the concerns, anxieties, and distractions of our daily life. Typically, this is going to be where we make current affairs ultimate. My job, my finances, my kids, their health, that person. And then we assign ourselves as the rescuer and fixer and savior of a billion storylines in our family, in our work, in our neighborhood, our church, our city, our nation, running all the time into all of the drama and striving to fix it while the ship continues to sink. And Jesus ends calling us to be watchful because, listen, whether you go toward the side of consumerism, I'm going to live for me, or you go toward the side of cares, I'm going to so pour out and so feel for everybody else's pain, I'm going to try to just be responsible for all of them. They will both end in cynicism. They'll both leave you with a hangover and bitter. So what's Jesus' answer? He ends the passage saying this, Stay awake. 
Regain your strength. Take your stand. I want to submit to you that I believe this chapter ends right back at the beginning. And he points to the disciples and he says, hey, you heard all the noise. You heard everything that's broken. Can I just take you back to a poor widow right here in the temple that didn't have a care in the world and she would have every reason to. She has nothing. But I was her whole gaze. And she took all that was in her hand and laid it at my feet because she loved me more than anything. And so this is what I want to leave us with this morning. I'm going to ask every person if you'd stand with me. What do we do when the world is ending? Can you put your hands out in front of you? This is my question. You got two hands out in front of you. Would you look at the mites in your hands? Would you look at the offering and the coins in your hands? What time has God given you here? What is it that you have at your disposal to go, okay, Jesus, I could give some time there for the sake of you, your kingdom, for the sake of bringing people into fullness? What talents do you have? What abilities and resources? And listen, we never understand the glory in us. But what is it that God has given you to do that you say, I'm good at this? And I'm not going to make it about me anymore. I don't even need to be impressed with it. Jesus, I love you. You can have that thing. Come on, somebody. Jesus, this is my ability, and I've been treated like my ability. Now it's at your disposal, whatever you say. Here I am, Lord, send me. I'm going to ask the question, what treasures do you have? What resources? What stuff? What finances? That maybe you've been holding and saying, it's mine, and i got to hold on to it because this is broken and that's broken, but you'd say like a poor widow, no, Jesus, I'm going to choose right now in the midst of all the noise to only see you. Whatever I have, here it is. Here I am, send me. The last question I'll ask is this. Where is God calling for your touch? Your presence to be there with someone who is broken, who is hurting, who is drowning. Who are the faces and the people that God is saying, right now, stop focusing on everything that's broken. Stop resenting your trials. Catch my gaze. See me. Reflect me. Worship me. Serve me. Just let me fill your whole horizon. And I promise you, the ship has left the dock. It's headed to its destination. You're going to get there. And if you look to me, many other people are getting on board because of your time, your talents, your treasure, your touch, your yes. Would you look at what you have in your hands right now and say, Jesus, here I am. I surrender. You can have it all. I'm going to ask the worship team just to play through this song, which is really a call saying, Jesus, send me. And I'm asking the Holy Spirit as they sing to show you what's in your hands. Whether you're impressed with it or you're not, whether it feels like a thin, little, insignificant offering, would you offer it fully because you want him more than anything? And after that, I'm asking Pastor Aaron to come close our service because we have some tangible needs right now as a body, some places where we need sons and daughters to say yes so that we continue advancing the kingdom of God in Brandon, the Bay, and beyond. Father, would you speak to us as your children? Would you return our joy? We come to give you all that we have. Amen.